Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Drotsky Show as I speak. It's Tuesday, March 7th, 2023. Here's a headline uh, in the newspaper to give you an idea of what's going on. You know what's going on. We're talking about it nonstop. Chicago mayor election, mayoral election. I've been talking about it like, I don't know, a month straight now. Not getting tired of it either, folks. I could go another two months. <laughs> it's my time of the year. Oh, finally, I know something that's relevant. I'm going to just talk and talk and talk. And then I'm just going to pass out one day. Some people don't know anything about Chicago politics. But this is the funny thing about Chicago politics. This is going to relate to the headline I'm going to cite. Even if you don't know anything about Chicago politics, there's a compulsion to talk about it. And that leads me to the headline in today's uh, New York Times, speaking of entities that know nothing about Chicago or its politics, here's the headline. Lightfoot's wipeout is a lesson for Democrats. Uh, the conversation. So this is something the New York Times does, I think once a week, where they have a liberal columnist, Gail Collins, and a conservative columnist, Brett Stevens, engage in a conversation, which is taped uh, and then transcribed. I'm reading it on the, the newspaper. I'm sure my distinguished guest. It's an actual newspaper. But the distinguished guest is really impressed that I have a newspaper. That's just the way I roll, distinguished guest. Anyway, um, so they have this, you know, so one person's a conservative, the other one's uh, uh, the liberal, but they're civil. They joke and they get along. And so it's like, hey, why can't we be like them? Why must we be fighting? Red America, blue America. Uh, can we get along like Brett Stevens and Gail Collins? You know why they get along? Because she pretty much lets him say whatever he wants, even if it's idiotic. That's why they get along. The rest of America's not going to put up with such nonsense. Gail Collins, you're a great columnist. You're hilarious. I love you. I'm a huge fan. My family is fans. But I don't. if I were you, I'd get out of this. Because this guy, man. <laughs> so here they are. There are two people who don't live in Chicago. As far as I know, never lived in Chicago. Know nothing about Chicago politics. And they're weighing in. It's a, a lesson for Democrats. Really, what they're trying to do is tell readers in New York why they should care about Chicago. Unless you actually lived in Chicago at one point, you live in New York now, or you have relatives who live in Chicago, no one cares about Chicago in New York. But they have to give them a reason. for You should, you should care about it because there's a larger lesson. Oh, there's a larger lesson in Chicago. What, it could be that if you like starve neighborhoods, like it leads to crime and disruption and dislocation and dysfunction. And that could be a larger lesson you take. No, the larger lesson is if crime goes up, you must have more police on every corner. That's the lesson. And if Democrats don't learn that lesson, they're going to lose. That's the lesson. So here comes Brett Stevens. And he goes, and I'm quoting, every thriving city needs to get two basic things right. It has to be safe for people and safe for commerce. Under Lightfoot, homicides, carjackings, and shoplifting skyrocketed, and businesses fled the city. Nearly a third of Michigan Avenue's retail space is vacant. Boeing decided to move its headquarters out of the city. When the McDonald's CEO complained about crime, Lightfoot scolded him. 
So I'm glad Chicago voters had the good sense to give her the boot. I just hope they have the good, also the good sense to go with the centrist Paul Vallis. He's a centrist now. In the runoff election, instead of his opponent, Brandon Light Johnson, who may even be further to the left than Lightweight or Lightfoot. Oh, he makes a joke. Oh, Brett Stevens will be at Zany's next week, ladies and gentlemen. This is a press release that was delivered to Brett Stevens from the Paul Vallis campaign. Literally, he read a press release. This is journalism? I could break this down every which way you want. Crime went up. Yes, it went up. It went up across the country. It went up probably as a result of the crackdown of the pandemic. Somewhere, 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 someplace, some sociologist is taking a deep dive on this, and it's going to come up with a theory or a group of theories, and then there'll be dueling theories as to what happened in 2020, 2021 and 2022 with crime. Crime was also sky high, Brett Stevens, in 1990 when Paul Vallis was at the Revenue Department under Mayor Daley and the schools under Mayor Daley. But I never heard any conservative complain about crime in Chicago when Mayor Daley was the mayor. Wonder why that is. Mayor Daley's the mayor. There's order in the universe. And then they would treat crime like, well, you know, but he's only a mayor. What can he do about crime? A black person becomes mayor. It's like, well, what are you going to do, mayor? Huh? It's on your watch. Like anything happens on her watch. Like Mayor Lori Lightfoot, she's not on a train when someone got held up. And this thing about Boeing leaving, hello, nobody wanted Boeing in the first place. They got a huge handout from the state to move their headquarters to Chicago. They kept their jobs in Washington. They didn't even bring the jobs into Chicago. The suckers in the state of Illinois and Chicago subsidized their headquarters. Who cares if they leave? Brett Stevens is opining from New York. The consequences, Chicago, for Boeing League. <laughs> Dude, you don't even know where Boeing's headquarters were. And I'm sure the landlord has filled it up, by the way. I mean, it's not even worth going on. A third of Michigan Avenue's retail space is vacant? I don't know. I wonder about that number. Who knows where he got that number? But again, probably Vallis's campaign. I don't know. You think it had something to do with the pandemic? Just think. Oh, it's Lori Lightfoot's fault. Look, I was no huge fan of Lori Lightfoot. We all know that. But this is absurd. Trying to turn Lori Lightfoot's defeat into some kind of victory for conservative causes. And then Gail Collins kind of ducks it. She comes back. um, She just kind of moves on. We're going to have to move. uh, We're going to have more to discuss on that point. Move on. She wants to move on. You know what? I think there's two things going on. One, I I generally believe that liberals are less likely to opine about things they don't know than conservatives. And I know that women are less likely to opine about things they don't know than men. Men will talk about absolutely anything, even if they don't know it. Well, here's what's going on. I must know this because it was given to me in a press release from the Vallis campaign. Anyway. That's what's going on in the New York Times, ladies and gentlemen. I read it, so you don't have to. All right, without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. I know he has a lot of opinions. He's ready to opine on a lot of things. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Uh, well, yeah, I love that. I love the uh, setup there, uh, that guys will say anything, <laughs> even if they have no no reason to speak about anything. So let's let's hear from my distinguished guest, who who clearly has nothing to offer any of this. And and fully admits it. I, I am not Brett Stevens. I am not Brett Stevens. I am. I share a name with him, though. My name's Steve um, James. So. Uh, he is Steve James. He's an incredibly talented filmmaker. Uh, one time, I spent the better part of ten minutes conversing with him on what our favorite Steve James. Remember that conversation, Steve? Uh, and that, that, of course, I was wrong. He like chastised me in my choice. <laughs> if you recall, I think I liked the Allen Iverson movie the best. I can't remember anymore. Uh, anyway, he's uh, Steve James Hoop Dreams, uh, the Allen Iverson movie, which is not really the name of it, but I love it so much. I just call it the Allen Iverson movie. Uh, and a couple of new movies that are coming out really soon, which I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to talk about. So I'm going to let Steve uh, handle that should have won the Academy Award for Hoop Dreams. Just saying that one more time. Twenty years has passed. I've not got over it. Uh, and um, 
The reason I asked Steve to come back because it's been four years since City So Real came out, which was your documentary about the mayoral election of 2019. I dedicated four shows, Steve, four shows to that one documentary. <laughs> four shows. Uh, and, for guests. Yeah. No, <laughs> it's a great documentary, ladies and gentlemen. I urge you to check it out. Uh, the last segment of that documentary, the episode, is about the summer of 2020, and it's haunting. Uh, just the unrest, the rioting, uh, the, the sense of chaos, uh, the upset. It just—it was in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. It's just a really compelling piece of work, and so I urge everybody. Uh, Steve, tell folks where they can watch City So Real. You can get it on Hulu. And you can probably buy it on Amazon or something too. But you, if you have Hulu, you can get it, watch it for free. Uh, so, Steve, why don't you take us back in time uh, to 2018, 2019, when you were making City So Real, and uh, tell us uh, what sort of your purpose was uh, with that movie? Well, uh, you know, it, it seemed like, um, I mean, you know, the dirty little secret is that I, uh, up until fairly recently, I lived in Oak Park. Um, not Chicago, but, uh, but I've, you know, I've been in the Chicagoland area all these years and, and, and politics of Chicago has always interested me. Um, when I first moved here, Harold Washington was mayor and I got a heavy dose of council wars and I'd never heard anything like that before. Uh, um, you know, the, the overt racist battling that went on <laughs> at that time. And this was like 1984. 86. So, you know, over the years, I've, I've certainly paid attention to what goes on in Chicago and cared about what goes on. And four years ago, I thought this would be an ideal time to tell the story of Chicago in and around its politics, because you had this election happening where you had tons of people um, who wanted to be mayor. And we started the project before um, you know, before Rom dropped out because we thought, well, Rom's going to be, you know, he's going to be the guy in the runoff and who is he going to be running against was, was sort of the, the, the feeling at that time. And you had all these people vying for it. And then when Rom dropped out, the, the decision to make this series was even better because then it was a free for all of sorts. And, and, and so I wanted to tell the story of, of a Chicago mayoral election, but the this story of the city too around that time. And I also knew that the, the Laquan McDonald trial was going to come uh, in in the middle of it. And I thought, what a perfect time to tell the story of a, of a city in the midst of struggling with that trial, with who it's who's going to be its leader and where is this city going? And so that was the motivation for doing it. And some of the, uh, the characters uh, in your movie are on the uh, stage right now, uh, most notably Paul Vallis, uh, Jamal Green, uh, Willie Wilson. Am I forgetting anybody who ran? Oh, duh, Lord Lightfoot. <laughs> uh, so before we get into Paul Vallis, why don't you uh, give, give uh, your thoughts about Lori Lightfoot? Sort of now you have four years to reflect on it. You were there. Uh, you were recording her when she was very much an unknown uh, in most parts of Chicago, candidate Lori Lightfoot. Again, uh, the movie does not follow the uh, the showdown runoff between Preckwinkle and Lightfoot. It ends, uh, in terms of the election part of it, uh, with uh, the uh, first round of the election. So just talk about uh, Lori Lightfoot as a candidate uh, and Lori Lightfoot as a mayor. Yeah, well, so, yeah, when you know, it was funny because when we started City So Real, one of the very first candidates I reached out to was Lori Lightfoot because I thought she would be interesting to follow. Not because I thought she was going to become mayor, but I just thought she would be a fascinating, you know, uh, uh, candidate to follow because of her background, because of her identity. Um, and, uh, and so I reached out to her and, and I had a good, uh, intermediary. So I got through to her pretty, pretty quickly and she seemed interested in doing it, but then, there was this long period of time during our filming and during the election where I could not get past her handlers 
to do any filming with her. And I would see her at events and I'd film her press conferences and such. And I would always make a point of going up to her and saying, Laurie, I really want to get some time with you, you know, uh, more intimate time filming. And she would be receptive, but her handlers never made it happen. Finally, we got it to happen. And when we did, we spent this, the first time I filmed with her, we spent the entire day with her. And we were in her car with her. We went out to lunch with her. <laughs> we we met with some uh, um, some some of her uh, volunteers, and I was really impressed with her. Um, you know, she seemed to be someone who was very grounded. Um, you know, she's a famous. She she certainly something she talks about a lot. I'm a famous sports fan, uh, and me being a sports fan, that was certainly something I could bond with her over. And she seemed to have a really good touch with people. You know, she she could she could really converse with people in a way that felt like they were being heard, and that she was just a very real person. Um, and you know, we filmed more with her once we got in. We filmed more with her, and I got more of a sense of her. And and that part of it never really changed. You know, she was very outspoken about the machine politics. She was very outspoken about Preckwinkle even before the runoff. Um, she definitely did not like Preckwinkle. And in part, she didn't like Preckwinkle, uh, at least what I observed, was in part because Preckwinkle's campaign challenged Lori's, um, you know, for the, uh, um, for the ballot, um, you know, the, her petitions, signature petitions. And Lori just really, really hated that. And, and Preckwinkle came in hard on that and then eventually abandoned the challenge when it seemed clear that it was not going to prevail so so there was some bad blood there and she was happy to share it <laughs> uh you know uh in, in my time with her but but i again i was impressed but you know uh i go back to something mace jackson said in the film that um in in city so real around the time of the election um he said this, I think, in episode five, actually, after she'd been mayor for a year, right, when we did episode five, which was a year into her reign. And he said something that I think has real relevance to how she ended up being mayor. He said that Lori Lightfoot is really smart, and she may be, a lot of times, the smartest person in the world, in, in the room. She certainly thinks so. He said, but I don't think she's the smartest person politically in the room. And I thought that I've, re I've remembered that because I think that that, you know, among other things, I think really says something true about how she has been mayor. I think there's been, she, there has been this presumption on her part that she always knows best. Um, always. And she draw, she draws a lot of lines in the sand. She <laughs> that she's you know and and very adamant, and then has had to walk over those lines from time to time, like with the teachers' union. Um, and that and then, but it, but instead of that humbling her and making her sort of say sit back and go, okay, maybe I don't know everything. It almost feels like it has the opposite effect, which is she takes names and. <laughs> and gets even more entrenched and more um, confirmed in her convictions and everybody's wrong. Um, and, and so that's what I've observed over the years. I mean, that's just a kind of general overview. I mean, there's been lots of things. It was not a good sign uh, after the election uh, or leading up to the election when she or after the election, but before her inauguration, where she sort of apparently signaled to Rahm Emanuel that she was totally down with Lincoln Yards. Because she had, she, in, and you see it in City So Real, she had said, in, 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 in my view, as a more progressive person, she'd said all the right things about Lincoln Yards on the campaign trail and about what the problems were with Lincoln Yards and, and how she wanted to hold accountable the process. And then when that vote was going to come to bear before she took office, she apparently, you know, signaled like, go ahead and do what you need to do, Rom. I'm not going to be a problem. And that, that I think that was concerning before she even set foot into the office. Let, let, let's talk a little bit about that. Not so much Lincoln Yards itself. I'll just to uh, remind listeners, I, I'm pretty sure most of my listeners know Lincoln Yards, but there could be some who are first timers for this. 
Uh, so this was a mega billion dollar project uh, that was proposed under ROM. <clears throat> and the controversial aspect of it uh, is that it would receive a public subsidy, property tax dollars of $1.3 billion, yes, billion with a B, uh, to essentially uh, gentrify an already gentrifying neighborhood. Uh, and there was m- a lot of opposition uh, to Lincoln Yards uh, spending all that money uh, gentrifying a gentrifying neighborhood. Uh, and in uh, Steve's movie, he captures that through the uh, largely uh, to uh, uh, the comments of Tim Tutton, Timmy T, uh, from The Hideout. And uh, Lori Lightfoot, you're right, when she was a candidate, uh, she said that she didn't see the sense, the purpose, and spending so much uh, public dollars on a project that could probably be built without the public dollars. And there were so many other pressing infrastructure needs other than this community on the north side of Chicago, a prospering community, uh, and that uh, she would be against it. And then she looked the other way at a critical moment uh, and enabled it to pass in the last meeting without opposition from her, Rom's last meeting. And then there was a lawsuit filed against it. And not only did she not join the lawsuit, she sent in lawyers, city lawyers, to defeat the lawsuit. So she effectively, um, it's her, it became her project when that happened. And Steve, I've often wondered about this, this the, the notion of Lori breaking that promise, flipping on that issue. There were others, but that one in particular. Because I wrote so much about it, thought so much about it, talked about it. She said it to our face at the hideout in an interview. The same thing she told you. Uh, help me out here. I spend my life uh, obsessing over politics. You essentially dropped in for two years of your life, and then you got the hell out. Get sense. Um, people chastise me for believing the things that politicians say <laughs> they go ben you're not supposed to believe what they say they're politicians i'm like i don't know it's just something fundamental if they say they're against a public expenditure of that enormous amount for a upscale project don't you think they should carry through what's your sense of this as the filmmaker who watched Lori make the promise then break the promise is that just the way politicians are or is there something unusual about that? Go ahead. Well, I, I mean, I think that's true. That is the way politicians are. But I think part of what, what makes it particularly hard to understand in this case, at least for me, is, and, and if you look at, at her four years, you know, she, she, she really, um, one of her, her big accomplishments that she's proud of is this whole Southwest initiative right to invest in the south and west sides now i know there's debate about how substantial that really is but she really grant you know she really stands on that that was like a huge thing for her so it's almost like well if she came into office determined to invest in the south and west sides then why in god's name would she have supported lincoln yards i mean all that that 1.3 billion dollars would have been even under her own political um, beliefs would have been better spent elsewhere. So I don't know. I, I guess I assumed that she got, you know, she, she was coming into office and the last thing she wanted to do was to look like she was anti-jobs um, and anti-development um, because maybe she thought, you know, I don't know. I mean, I didn't talk to her um, because maybe she, she thought that, that she needed to show that she could play ball um, as mayor and, and then somehow she could turn that to her advantage. I don't know. I mean, uh, the only contact I had with Lori after I finished the film, um, <laughs> was interesting because, um, you know, I wondered if she watched it and, um, and at, and at different points, I, I, you know, I still have her cell phone number, which I'm not going to give to you, Ben. Maybe you have it. <laughs> Maybe you have it. Um, but, but I, I, I didn't want to abuse having that because <laughs> yeah. she had given it to me mm-hmm. when we were filming and it's still valid as far as I know. But, um, but, it, but at any rate, you know, um, I, I, at, a couple of times I texted her and said, you know, the, the, the series is out, Be, hopefully you get a chance to watch it. And then I didn't hear anything from her. And then suddenly out of the blue, I get this text from her where she says, 
something like I'm finally getting around to watching the series and enjoying it immensely. Congratulations. And, 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 but then she went on to say this, something like, I'm paraphrasing, it's really interesting to see people who were opposed to me now banging down my door and wanting, wanting, you know, to be my friend, great refresher. And it's like, I, I read that and I was just like, uh, wow, she really is keeping score. And it's sort of like, you know, that is what politicians do though, isn't it? It's like, don't, don't, isn't the one thing they understand is, is that people that may have supported someone else, <laughs> um, for an election that if you won that, yeah, they're going to start banging down your door because you're the boss and, and try to work with you. And it almost struck me that with Lori, it's almost like if you didn't support me when I was nobody, literally nobody, then I don't want to hear from you now. And it's like, is that how you govern? I, I, don't, I don't think that's a great governing strategy. <laughs> Uh, no, and uh, it's not. Uh, it's a chip on the shoulder strategy. It may get you far, let's say, as a scrappy point guard uh, <laughs> hounding the opponent, Patrick Beverly style, but yeah. it's not going to get you far in politics. It's the Michael Jordan. Uh, it's the Michael Jordan approach to politics, which is, <laughs> which is, I'm just going to, uh, I'm going to keep score. I'm going to remember who said what, and I'm going to use it against them when I play against them, but. But if they're if they became his teammate, I think you would hope that he would have a different approach. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I do not believe that the Michael Jordan approach that did so well for him in life, both on and off the court, is the approach I want to see a mayor use. Michael Jordan is notorious for holding a grudge, never forgetting a slight. He's still motivated by his what it was it the sophomore high school coach who cut him or. Yeah. And uh, his speech at the uh, in his induction ceremony is one for the at the Hall of Fame is just he starts <laughs> listing all the people that he's got a grudge again. And he anyway, all right, you know me, I could talk basketball and that that's it forever. But you know, uh, you gave me an idea for a column, uh, so thank you very much. Fifty fifty, whether I give you credit, uh, is the. Um, <laughs> uh, the notion that she wanted to show she was a player when she uh, flipped and supported or looked the other way, uh, she would say she didn't support it, but effectively she did. And then she went to court to protect uh, the, the $1.3 billion handout to Lincoln Yards. Uh, the people that benefited from that, the communities and the neighborhoods that benefited that were the first to turn on her. And then in the end, she was appealing to the communities that were most hurt by that $1.3 billion. And it's so Chicago right there, you know, city. So real, that is so Chicago like for, I don't know why Steve, maybe you have some theories on this. Maybe it's just, it's too difficult for anyone to figure out this soon, but those gold coast neighborhoods, those gentrifying already gentrifying Lincoln park area, uh, communities that center or that are border Lincoln Yards, they were given a ha huge handout and they voted overwhelmingly against Lori Lightfoot. They turned on her, Steve. She went to bat for them and they turned on her. Do you have a theory here? Help me. Because I wonder they, they, what's going on did, here. Did 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 they go mostly for Vallis, or was it a split between Vallis and Brandon Johnson? Vallis got uh, the um, the lion's share of the vote. I think he got over fifty percent in the forty second ward. Yeah, uh, don't quote me on that. I'm doing this from memory, which is a dangerous thing. But he got the he got most by far the plurality of the vote, uh, and then it was split among all the others right right uh, and yeah. and i think brandon johnson did better the further north you went but but in that in that area that you're talking about vallis really kind of slammed everybody um yeah yeah i i mean i have no idea um except that maybe his his argument about the fears of violence um racking the city um uh had impact on, on those communities. I mean, 
it sure seems like there is a fear of violence on the north side of Chicago, which is completely out of whack with its reality. Um, that that it seems to me to be the case, which is which is in no way to say that there's not a problem. There is a problem throughout the city, but something like 90 percent of the violence in Chicago takes place in 10 percent of the neighborhoods. I read that once and I don't know if those percentages are exactly right, but it it, it gives you a sense of just how specifically located the violence is. And so, you know, I, I don't know why all those people went for Vallis because they tend to be more liberal along those neighborhoods um, is, is my sense. But maybe I maybe I got that wrong because I am not a pundit, as you know. <laughs> I, You know what I like about you? Unlike Brett Stevens, you're just not making it up as you go along. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm making it up. But but I'm acknowledging <laughs> I'm making it up. <laughs> I see. Uh, one of the, um, I said this earlier, I'll repeat it. The, I always tell people, if you're going to watch an episode of City So Real, watch the last one. It is such compelling, uh, in my humble opinion, movie making about the summer of 2020. Uh, it's the coda to the movie. And uh, Steve, when he was on the show last time, pointed out that he sent out his son and his the younger guys to do the filming. But it, it just, oh, is, I, you're I right there, there in the midst. I was out there too. I sent him okay. to the protest so that if anything went off, he would have to deal with it. Got it. Okay. Uh, I said correct it. Uh, I did the fun stuff. I, I, you're right there in the middle of confrontations between the police and protesters. Uh, you really get a sense of how split the city of Chicago is on this essential notion of how to police and the violence in Chicago. The movie is a lot about the violence in Chicago. Uh, and Steve, we're seeing that play out in this campaign in many ways, like that split that you so uh, dramatically showed in uh, that final episode of City Story. It's in the other, some of the words, and like those, I'm thinking of those guys in Bridgeport, the split is very much in the word, you know what I mean? But uh, talk about that. Talk about like now that you have the hindsight of three years or whatever it is, two and a half, um, what was going on in the summer of 2020 and the the implications for where we are now? Uh, well, I, I mean, I think the thing, the thing that struck, some of the stuff that struck me about the summer of 2020 was... Um, you know, obviously, and, and in the wake of George Floyd, before that, it, it was just how vac vacant Chicago was, like most major cities. It was like, you know, ghost town. But once once George Floyd happened and, and it, it, it all shifted, um, you know, I was kind of amazed because I did film quite a few protests, um, but not 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 combative ones with the police. My son, Jackson, <laughs> he got that one uh, and others too. And, and what I noticed in both what I filmed and what Jackson filmed is, um, you know, there were a lot of, I think there were a lot of white, young white people in particular, but young white people who were venturing to protests on the South side and on the West side, who I think had probably never been in some of those neighborhoods before, honestly. Um, and they went down there for those protests because they felt so strongly. You know, there was a when you look back on that time, there was a kind of um, there was a kind of innocence even about it's time to change this world. You know, it's time to change the way in which we as white people engage in this city and engage with these issues and engage with police violence and violence against, you know, people of color. There was a, there was a kind of, a, a, a kind of inspired moment there. I mean, yes, there was some combativeness and there was some destruction downtown and we, we show that and captured that. But what I took away more than anything was something much more hopeful. Um, and of course, now as I look back on it from this vantage point, where the idea of woke has become a, a huge pejorative, um, 
and they're, they're, you know, and, and the backlash against, uh, you know, critical race theory and, 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 and talking honestly about American history, you know, it feels like it wasn't, it, it was a, it was an incredibly galvanizing time, but it almost looks like it was a naive time. I mean, I, I might be too cynical about that, but it feels, it feels almost, you know, I haven't gone back and watched the series, <laughs> but I feel like I could watch some of those protests now and that that really inspired me and, and wonder what happened. Uh, I wonder it all the time. And uh, I think about where we were then uh, and where we are now. Uh, and that moves me to uh, one of the other candidates that's depicted in uh, City So Real, uh, who has a very prominent role in politics in Chicago today. And that, of course, is Paul Vallis. Uh, and he ran as the law and order candidate uh, who is going to profit, politically speaking, uh, from the backlash to those protests, uh, to the unrest, to the rioting, uh, and to the whole notion of woke. Uh, I think you could say that uh, he's the beneficiary of that backlash. Uh, so tell me what your thoughts about Paul Vallis are, like what you thought about him when you first saw him and encountered him back in 2019 on the campaign trail uh, when you were filming him and then uh, up until today? <laughs> Paul, Paul was interesting because um, he he was funny because their campaign really kind of let us in. Like we, we spent a fair amount of time at his, um, you know, campaign office uh, on the near, he was on the near South side uh, there just, just below Congress. Um, and we spent quite a bit of time there. And, um, and, and of course, one of the most wonderful people we followed in the series to, to a limited degree, because we didn't follow anybody in great detail because there was too many people to follow. But one of my favorite people in the series was Phil Bradley that worked for, for Paul and Phil's a character. Um, and, and, you know, and one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when Paul goes down to the daily restaurant at, you know, 63rd and Cottage Grove, the, the famous old daily restaurant, not owned by the family, the daily family, but but the daily restaurant. And um, and he's <laughs> and Phil's job is to is to wrangle people to have coffee with with Paul Vallis and talk about the issues. And most of them have no interest in that at all. Um, (laughs) uh, he's, he's trying to ply them with t-shirts, which helps some and with free coffee. So that helps a little bit, but, um, it's just a really funny scene about, uh, here's a black political operative for, for Paul in a black neighborhood, trying his damnedest to generate some interest in his, you know, in Paul Vallis. And it's, it, it's, I wouldn't say it's a success, but it's a great scene for our movie. So I love it. Um, and the thing about Paul that struck me is besides the fact that, um, he didn't really connect with black, um, voters per se then, um, was he's also was kind of like the egghead professor type, you know, he, he, you know, around the office, he, he could easily get off on a rant about something and dig into the weeds uh, and he have a 10 point plan. And, and, you know, Phil and some of the other political operatives, one of their goals on the campaign trail with, with Vallis was to not let him do that. Right. They were, they were like, do not, we have to cut him off. We cannot <laughs> let him get into a 10 point plan on what he's going to do about a problem. Um, because people's eyes would glaze over. Um, and, and I think that was true. And so, you know, and there's a very funny scene in in one of the episodes where one of his uh, political guys, not Phil, white kid, uh, is talking about how how Paul cannot. He just constantly loses his laptop. Like he takes it out and he leaves it in cabs, leaves it in <laughs> restaurants, he leaves it everywhere, and they're constantly having to go find his laptop. And the guy's <laughs> telling us this on camera. And literally at that moment, you'd think we staged it, but we didn't. Paul comes into the office, walks directly up to him and says, I just left my laptop in a cab. (laughs) And and the guy is like, so, you know, this was kind of Paul Valley. He seemed almost, 
I mean, honestly, in a weird sort of way, he seemed kind of like this harmless egghead to me. Um, and, you know, who was earnest, um, very earnest fellow, struck me as that. Um, and very proud, of course, of everything he had done. He was constantly telling you, as he did in this election, about all the great successes he'd had. Um, when he was running this, the CT, you know, running the school board and all of that stuff. And so, but he seemed harmless and, and, and not particularly consequential. And the, the voting bore it out because he got like five and a half percent of the vote. Um, because as I'm sure you've talked about at great length, he was one of four. And if you count, I count Jerry, Gary, Jerry Chico as a white guy. I don't know if other people do, but. So I say he's one of was one of five um, white guys in the race back then. Can you? Here we go. Challenge trivia. Challenge. Name them. It's been four years. Do you still remember? Them? Uh, Daly, uh, Joyce, uh, McCarthy, Vallis, uh, and then there's that kid. Uh, Col- Col- what's, <laughs> kid. what's his name? Col- I don't know. The kid's good enough. Everybody goes, whenever I give some of that, I do it all the time. All right. Name the white guys in a 2019 mayor. Colder or Culver. Yeah. um, The kid from Bridgeport. Coatsler. Everybody. everybody Cosler. I was just in a car with three of my uh, really great guys, uh, all political junkies, all political reporters. We drove uh, to uh, Milwaukee to don't not having not watching enough Bulls games. I went to Milwaukee to watch a Bucks Sixers game. I need help, Steve. I need help. And um, we were in the car. We were talking nonstop politics. Okay, just like upset everybody. Like talking. <laughs> I gotta talk. I gotta talk. And I gave the trivia question. All right, guys, let's go. The, the white guys in the race, 2019 go. And to a t- they're all geniuses when it comes to politics in Chicago, Steve. They all said, the kid from Bridgeport. <laughs> I go, it's good enough. Counts. <laughs> the kid from Bridgeport. Uh, so, all right. Uh, go beyond that. Uh, the, that analysis. I, I Listen, I'm a big believer in the great uh, white hope theory of as to why Paul Vallis uh, won uh, the first round or uh, moved on to the second round. I absolutely uh, believe it. Uh, is there anything else different about Paul Vallis today as, that you see from afar? I know you're not following him day to day. than what he was in 2019, do you think he's more focused, more disciplined, less likely to leave his laptop in a cab, <laughs> uh, less likely to go on 10-minute, uh, you know, rambling uh, discourses on the great things he's done. I, I, uh, I'll bet all of those things are still true. I think the, the, the thing that's probably different, of course, which is obvious, um, is, you know, four years ago, he did not grandstand on the violence issue in Chicago. Um, that I recall that was not, um, that was not a big thing. Now he was proud of the fact that he has, he he has relatives who are on police forces and stuff so he he spoke to that but he didn't he didn't grandstand on it and and he was he certainly wasn't raising the specter of specter of like we have to get chicago back which is you know like almost like a maga cry um uh it seems so so i think that that he landed on that issue and i think the other thing which he did then but i think maybe it just resonated more this time around was um is he seems like the real adult in the room who has had a lot of experience, right? I mean, that I think he he was effective in communicating the sense that he's done a lot and he's been in charge of institutions and he's, you know, he's he's the adult in the room. He's he's the guy that's really done this um, and and has and 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 has that twelve point program, which he's happy to tell you if you just give him an opportunity. You know, he's got it all figured out. I mean, that was what he was always trying to do four years ago was to give you that sense that he's thought everything through in intimate detail. So I think maybe that resonates with people more this time around. But I think the violence thing particularly resonates. And I think that, you know, that doesn't just resonate with white folks. That resonates with black folks 
in communities that are besieged with violence. Um, you know, because it's, and it's not, you know, it's the black voter, as you know, better than me is not some monolithic block that, um, in terms of how they view politics in this city. And, um, you know, there, there is legitimate, understandable fear of the violence in Chicago. And for some people the you know, uh, his law and order, more law and order kind of message, pro-police message, I would bet resonated with them. Not just, not just white folks in Bridgeport and the Northwest side and, you know, Greenwood and places like that. You know, uh, you talk about the black community not being a monolith. Uh, in this last election, another candidate who ran in 2019, Willie Wilson, got, I want to say 20%, I'm doing this off the top of my head again, of the vote in black wards, which is astounding uh, given that Willie Wilson is basically a Republican, supported Trump in 2016, supported Ronner in 2018, uh, and was ran to the right of Paul Vallis in this last election on law and order. And he got 20%. Uh, of the black vote, which is roughly what he got last time in 2019 and roughly what he got, I think, in 2015. So he's got his vote. Here's the the thing that I don't, that I, that I, that like Willie, and this is based on four years ago, because we, we spent, Willie was very generous in terms of letting us into his campaign and particularly Ricky Hendon, you know, (laughs) who is, who is the documentary gift from the gods as a, as a, as somebody <laughs> to follow. Um, <clears throat> Willie, I mean, I heard this, you know, and this is no revelation at all. Uh, I have no revelations. You figure that out by now. It's like, I'm just, you know, telling you stuff you already know, but Willie, I understood his appeal in the black community because I heard it com- constantly when we were out there, which is Willie's a, Willie's a guy that made it. And he's a guy that's given back. And yeah, he was given back very purposefully to help himself get elected. No question. But even when he's not running for office, Willie's reputation, I think, well-earned has been that he gives back and has done that consistently um, throughout his professional life. And people know that and love that about him and respect him greatly for it. Uh, And I think that that was a big part of his support too, was just this notion that people liked Willie Wilson and they felt like he was a, a real guy who made it on his own, came up from nothing, made it and gives back to the community. And that meant a lot to people. I don't know, but how does that apply to a Paul Vallis, right? I mean, <laughs> so I, in a way I, I see Willie's support. I understand Willie's support, even if you eliminate like the conservative politic part of it, you know, just the man himself. I see where Willie gets that kind of groundswell of support that helped him win, I think, all the black wards in the first round four years ago. Um, he didn't win them all this time, but he still did well. Um, but Ballas is, is, is much harder to understand when you, if you're just trying to eliminate the race question, right? It, you know, it's, it's harder to understand the Ballas thing as much for me. I, I'm, listen. Your riff on Vallis being the quote-unquote uh, grown-up in the room just solidified my notion uh, that it was the great white hope theory. Because I know this wasn't your purpose in saying the grown-up in the room, but that's he was the white guy in the room. And uh, at the risk of reducing all white people uh, to a single unit, which is really unfair, and I apologize for what I'm about to do up front for doing it, uh, I know how white people think. And they're like, oh, well, you know, I'll put him in charge. He's the white guy. You know, and they'll never, some of them will say it openly, others won't. Uh, just a notion, going back to Brett Stevens calling Paul Vallis a centrist. Paul Vallis's views on things like education and his belief in vouchers, uh, he wants to have a voucher program in Chicago, are so non centrist. You know, it's just, it, it, but because he's a white guy, well, he, I don't know, vote for him because he knows he did it before. He's going to destroy public education, as you know. Yeah, but I don't know. So I, I, I very much think uh, what you said is just cement, sort of cemented my notion that it was a great white hope vote. 
and you're absolutely correct about Willie. And I've been saying this, Steve, for two weeks now. The light went on after the election. I believe that the biggest single mistake that Lori Lightfoot made uh, in her uh, uh, the political end of it was spurning Willie Wilson so early on in her uh, uh, tenure as mayor. He uh, he was pivotal. Uh, his support was pivotal for her in 2019 in the runoff. There was no reason in the world that she would not give him her. She gave you her number. She should have given Willie Wilson her number. <laughs> and yeah, she texted you. She should have responded to him. And he got hurt. And I don't blame him. You know, he stuck his neck out for her. Oh, my God. Uh, I mean, especially and, when you think about yeah. the fact that, um, you know, so much of his base is, was, and it remains, I think, culturally religious and culturally conservative, right? And and he he encouraged his base to go vote for a, um, a gay black woman. Um, and that's kind of amazing. You know, I, I had a conversation with a colleague of mine a few days ago. We, we, we were talking about something else and then we got off on the election. Right. And this particular colleague is a, is a black gay woman. And I was, I was careful about opining my views about why Lori Lightfoot lost and all of that. Um, to her because I wanted to hear what she had to say. And she said, you know, she said that Lori's leaning into this notion that she lost because, you know, they're going to come after a gay black woman that she was, she as a gay black woman was offended by that, by that, by, by the degree to which she was, she was invoking that as a big part of why she lost. And, I was heartened to hear that from her it even and it totally squared with what my understanding is, is of the black progressive community in Chicago. But to hear it come from someone like this, who is very politically uh, engaged and and to to talk about she literally said I was offended by her seizing on that so completely as part of the reason she lost. and. Um, I don't know. I was just really struck by that. I, I know that's not about Dallas. No, uh, but it's about Lori Lightfoot not being in the runoff. Had she courted Willie Wilson, had she accorded him the respect that he deserves, uh, had she responded to his phone calls, had she initiated phone calls to him on her own, had she treated him like she would treat any person she thought was important and worth treating with respect, he would support her. She would be in the runoff today. Right. End of story. Because he wouldn't have run. There's no doubt in my mind. your point. He wouldn't, he wouldn't have run. run. He would have supported her. Right. And uh, it just... She should So now, I mean... She should have made him, like, um, create a department head for giving money away, you know? Like, and let Willie be... The, <laughs> let, let Willie make the call, you know? You know, <laughs> there's there's so many... I could fill your head with all the board appointments that he could have done. He could have done any of them. He could have been on the park district board. He could have been on the plan commission. He could have been on the zoning advisory, whatever. No, she didn't treat him with the respect. And I believe he, Willie and I don't see eye to eye politically. Willie knows that. I've said that to him many times. I was go. I'm a lefty, and you're a conservative Republican. He goes, I'm not a Republican. Then he always gets mad. I'm not a Republican. All right, whatever. Uh, and you always have a people in Chicago never say they're Republican. Vallis, I'm a lifelong Democrat, except for the part when I wasn't a Democrat. Well, then it's not lifelong. Uh, anyway, um, uh, but I believe he earned uh, respect from her, and he didn't get it. And uh, I, I'll never, I'll never understand. Maze is right. She had no. No, no political on that re, on that regard. You're right, right, Mays. Don't get carried away. All right. Uh, <laughs> on that regard, speaking, the rest of us speaking stuff. speaking of uh, uh, a Republican black guy. <laughs> yes, who will never admit that he's Republican. Um, all right. Uh, I urge everybody to check it out. It you know when I'm listening to you, uh, Steve, and reflecting on the movie. 
uh, I realized it was a more innocent time. It's so weird. Like we're in a jaded, darker space right now in Chicago, my humble opinion. Uh, and, um, it's remarkable though. I'm, I'm flashing back to those scenes with Lori Lightfoot. You're driving around with her and, uh, and those scenes where she's talking about the bears, hopefully they were right before a playoff game where the, they kicked the ball. <laughs> He kicked the ball off the goalpost. Uh, her heart was broken, as was mine. The Bears have not been back to the play. Well, I think they stumbled in because everybody it was like AYSO soccer that year. Everybody got to be in the playoffs. But uh, they've not had any meaningful uh, season since. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's like a time capsule in that regard. And I urge everybody to check it out. And if you can't sit through, how many episodes is it, Steve? It's five, but they're, five? they're a lot of five. Okay. a lot of fun <laughs> just watch the last one if you gotta watch one watch it's brilliant the last one now steve's gonna be like after the show wait you didn't like the first uh, four I, you kept talking about I'm the not last waiting till after the show it's like people <laughs> people need to start with episode one okay and 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 you'll decide you'll want to watch episode two and then you'll decide you want to watch three and four and then five will be the icing on the cake Fair enough. That's what I should have said. Uh, All right. Uh, Let's close by you telling us whatever it is you're going to tell us about these two films. This guy is like Spielberg. He he just never stops working. Uh, And um, oh my God, there's one that I'm dying to watch, which uh, Steve is not sharing with me because it's, he's a sadist and he knows I want to really want to watch and he won't let me watch it. Uh, the other one's pretty good, too, okay? One's a spy movie. One's a basketball movie. So why don't you uh, fill in the details? Yeah, so the spy movie is called uh, A Compassionate Spy. It's a it's a film that um, was on the festival circuit last, last year. Uh, it's still on the festival circuit, but it's going to get a theatrical release of sorts uh, in August of this year, which I'm excited about. Um, and it will also be available on Hulu. And um, it's it's basically about this guy named Ted Hall, um, who was a um, a Wunderkind um, young physicist out of Harvard. He graduated from Harvard. He's like you, Ben, really smart guy. He graduated from Harvard <laughs> at the age of 18. I think that's when you were at Harvard, right, Ben? Um, yeah, it was my Harvard years. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he was recruited to work on the Manhattan Project. And he got out there and he equipped himself so well as even a very, very, he was the youngest guy at the Manhattan Project, um, that they gave him more and more responsibility. And the, the more he was there, the longer he was there, he decided... He was also in- incredibly precociously politically knowledgeable guy, and he was a left wing guy, and probably identified as communist even at a time when that was not that radically unusual. Anyway, he decided that he was going to pass secrets to the Soviets, who were our allies during the war, because he worried that the United States in the post war world could, that having the bomb all to themselves, that if a right-wing um, politician came to power, that they could very well just carpet bomb with nuclear weapons the Soviet Union into oblivion. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people who say, oh, my God, he, he, he was a true traitor and a terrible person, and how could he do that? Um, but the film makes his case while also hearing from people who are critical from it about him. And, and actually shows in many right ways how he, his fear of what the U.S. would do post-war was entirely grounded in what eventually came to pass in the post-war in terms of the U.S.'s uh, game planning and planning for preemptive nuclear strike on the Soviet Union. And had the, had the Soviet Union not gotten the bomb as early as they did, in part due to people like Ted Hall, who knows what would have happened? So it's a, it's a very provocative film. It's also a love story about about Ted Hall and his wife Joan. Uh, and to me, in some ways, that's my favorite part of the movie. I mean, I love the politics of it, but my favorite part of the movie is 
it's this incredible love story. Joan, a Chicagoan, because there's got to be a Chicago connection, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, she married Ted when he was a grad student at the University of Chicago after the war, and she helped him elude the FBI and maintain his freedom for the rest of his life. Um, so it's a it's a it's a pretty uh, pretty pretty compelling story, and I think a timely story now, given what's going on in the world. Yeah, uh, Steve was so gracious to share that movie with me, so I got to watch it. Uh, and I, it's funny, Steve, while you were giving the uh, saying what was in the movie, I was like, it's a love story. It's a love story. It's a love story. That's your lead, kid. Make that the lead. Uh, <laughs> it's a love story. And then you finally got to the love story part. You buried the lead, as I said. But it is a love story. You're very compassionate to the halls. Uh, it's. I, I. I think I may have texted this to you. I think they're very lucky that you told that story. Uh, that story you told in somebody else's hand, they would have looked like diabolical, evil enemies of all things that are truly American. Uh, you put it in the context of the time, and um, they are just two brilliant people. Yeah, the halls and Steve was very funny there. <laughs> We're talking comparing me to the hall guy. Oh God, when I was eighteen, I was obsessing about the Chicago Bulls starting lineup. Okay, that's what I was doing. Eighteen, who's in the? Oh, that was the seventy-three Bulls. What a year! Good God. <laughs> <laughs> Dead Hall, yeah. discussing the Bulls with Ben Jarofsky. Yeah. Um, but uh, they're both of them are exceedingly intelligent. They speak a whole bunch of languages, uh, read and write poetry. Uh, they're just on a level beyond <laughs> what the rest of us are. And, and you just you show them as just normal, not normal, but just people that you can kind of understand, even though they're so much more intelligent than the rest of us. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's sad in, in many ways. Uh, and pe- time has passed. I, don't know, I thought it was a very beautiful movie that worked on several levels. One of which was to show with some compassion, uh, the, the decision-making of a man who literally betrayed his country. Yeah. Uh, he was, was kind of like Edward Snowden before Edward Snowden, you know, he was someone who was inside of this process of creating the bomb and then came to a kind of realization that, oh my God, what are we doing here? Um, this isn't right, and I'm I'm determined to not uh, to do something about it. So many of the scientists at the Manhattan Project felt the same way Ted did, but he was one of the yeah. he was one of only one or two 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 or three people who actually took steps to try to do something about it. And you know, it's it's that youthful. Um, <laughs> you know spirit that he had i mean he was bravado he was 18 19 when he did this i was drooling on my desk in my (laughs) senior year in high school when that was going on so you were on the basketball and and on the basketball team yeah yes very proud of that so speaking of basketball basketball. the other one yes how's that for a transition that's um, you should be the podcaster (laughs) i should be the filmmaker go on (laughs) Um, how would that work yeah i'm gonna launch my own show and uh, i'll have to go on guess um so the other one is is for espn and it's a 30 for 30 uh and it's a docuseries about uh the basketball player bill wall um who you know was the great ucla center um and went on to have a injury-plagued career in the pros, but did win a championship with the Portland Trailblazers in the first round of which they beat a terrific Bulls team. Um, and, uh, and then also won another championship when he was six man for the Boston Celtics. But, you know, we, we definitely tell the basketball story uh, in the series, but it, it's also very much about Bill's life apart from basketball. Um, he was, by the time he got to the pros, he was one of the more outspoken white athletes I think we've ever had um, in sports, in pro sports. Uh, he was, you know, identified as being a real radical leftist hippie. Um, and he certainly fit the part in a lot of ways with long hair and and politics that that offended a lot of people. And so we get into all of that and and you know, and also his personal and really profound struggles with injuries um, that 
derailed his career, but also later in life, even after his career was over, um, brought him very low. Um, so, uh, and, and he came through that. Uh, we, we get into his broadcast career, you know, too, where it's sort of like he's a guy that people either love to listen to uh, do a game or they absolutely hate uh, <laughs> to, to listen to him yeah. doing a game. Um, yeah. And we get into that, too, and have some sport. <laughs> I love I loved it. I put me in the love category. I love Howard Cosell. So I love Stephen A. Smith. So I love anybody who's got that gift. And uh and Walton has it. I love, I love when he just goes off. Where are you going, Bill? I don't care. I'll follow you. You know. And uh, yeah. So the series is some of his is it's premiering at um, it's premiering at South by Southwest next week, literally, uh, and oh. and then it will be on uh, ESPN sometime in June. So. Oh, I'll get to watch it in June. Then is that correct? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll share a link it. with you. Uh, in advance, if you know, because I'm assuming you'll want want to have me back on the show. I hope to talk about. Def- I'll have you back. I'm gonna have a two for. I'm gonna get two two out of you because I'm gonna bring you back for the hall show. We're gonna do a whole show on the halls, uh, <laughs> and then uh, I'll bring you back for Walton, and that that'll be a field day. I may do. Uh, I could see doing a four part four parter on Walton. <laughs> Looks like well, I did it, on City So It is Real. a four part docu series. So so there you go. Oh, is yeah. it? Oh, it does it drop once a week. It's like, going to uh, be two episodes a week apart. Okay. Well, I don't know. I I, I did the six parter on um, uh, the Last Dance, the Michael Jordan. You were a guest. That's right. That was, uh, you were a guest talking about Michael Jeffrey Jordan. Uh, and then I did a four-parter, I want to say, uh, on City So Real. So who knows? Uh, but yeah, I, I really cannot wait to see it. Bill Walton is just truly one of the great characters uh, in American sport over the last, I don't know, hundred years. I mean, just what an interesting guy. That's about all I'll say. And so I, I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Uh, and I urge everybody when you get a chance to see. Uh, we're going to talk about it when it comes out for that theatrical run. But the uh, A Compassionate Spy. Totally different subject. So uh, Steve showing some range here uh, with his topics, uh, and I got to give him credit getting the hell away from Chicago. He's never going to make that mistake again. Do <laughs> another documentary about Chicago politics. Uh, so anyway, Steve, thanks so much. Appreciate it. We'd uh, look. It's we could talk. I know we could talk for another hour, but uh, Nate DJ Nate wants to go home, so <laughs> we're going to cut it short here. <laughs> yeah, always always a blast talking to you, Ben. So. Thanks for having me on. All right. That's the great Steve James. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 